0: Well, the Rays are officially in the offseason now after winning 96 games on the season, finishing 30 games above five hundred, and then going 3-3 and in the playoffs, ultimately losing to the Astros, who finished with the best record in baseball. And those Astros now have a 2-1 to series lead over the Yankees in the ALCS. But we've got Mark Topkin on the podcast today to talk about everything Rays. We're going to go through uh, kind of the future of the team, how young this team is, the players that are free agents, what they may look to add in free agency next year. Of course, Eric Neander saying that he likes the roster and doesn't see a lot of changes, but that's really not their DNA as the Rays. They tend to to make a lot of changes in the offseason, so we'll see how that goes. Only three free agents, only nine players arbitration eligible on the 40-man roster, so I think there'll be some tough decisions for the Rays, and we've got Mark Topkin to break it all down for you as we get set here on Sports Day Tampa Bay. Rick Stroud on vacation, still taking in a couple days in Europe after that game in London for the Bucks. He's got his family over there, so Steve Versnick uh, subbing in for him. All right, Mark Topkin joins us now for off covering the ALDS series between the Astros and the Rays last week, which the Rays lost in five games. But I would say overall an impressive performance in that series, considering you lose the first two games to Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole. You come back in games three and four and take it to the Astros and get early leads and 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 really pitch extremely well in that series. And then Game five, you, you run into Garrett Cole again, and, and, and Tyler Glasnow, who said he was obviously, it was apparent he was tipping pitches, and everyone's seen the video by now, he was. Um, it kind of got him in a hole early, but really an impressive season and an impressive series for the Rays, right, Mark?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you, you go back and look you know, from the start of the year, you go back through some of the injuries uh, and who they were to and how long guys were out. Obviously, you know, the typical roster shuffling during the year, but to win 96 games during the regular season, to win three more games in the postseason with the one in the wild card game and the two in the division series, a 99-win season, uh, and with a really young core. So just the the overhead view is uh, a very encouraging season, and yet I think um, almost to a man talking to the Rays personnel, management, and players, they feel like this was kind of the opening of a window. Now, sure, could they step back? Could that not go as planned? But... I think they have the right take on that. That you know, they they kind of rebuilt this team on the fly. They didn't do a total, you know, break it down and lose a hundred for three years like some teams did. But they kind of re, rebuilt this team, and they got a pretty good position. This definitely was a year to be proud of. I mean, did they fall short? Sure, but if you you think about it, Steve, I mean, literally every team but one at the end of the year is disappointed for one reason or another, whether because they had a crappy year, they didn't make the playoff, they made it and got knocked out early, whatever. But everybody but the one team will be disappointed and. I think the Rays certainly have a lot more to be proud about than to be disappointed about, especially as you said, taking the Astros to the fifth game.
0: Yeah, and Tom Jones and I talked about this yesterday, how they lose in the ALDS and you're disappointed. And, you know, to the players, the fans, everybody's disappointed that you thought you had a shot to move on. And you did. But it sure feels more optimistic than most playoff losses. And I think it's because of how young the team is in that window you talked about. Right, right.
1: And also even the matchup. I mean, you know, the, if we, we had had this discussion uh, somewhere along the, the path from Toronto to Oakland is if you make the wild card game, you play it on the road and you lose. Does it even feel like you made the playoffs? And and I think that's a fair debate. I mean, I think that's probably something we would have written had they lost to Oakland. But you, know, you win that game, then they go on to Houston. They have the rough first couple games, and you're you know almost the same thing. Like okay, so you made the playoffs, you won the wild card game, but you're going to come home and you know get swept out of this thing right away, and it's going to be over like that. And boom, does it really feel like a success? But to have those two games at the Trop, to have the games go the way they did on the field, to have the crowd turn out the way it did, to kind of you know bring baseball back, so to speak, to to the Tropicana Field and to St. Petersburg, uh, into the Tampa Bay market after what had been a a rough season attendance-wise. I I think that's what made the season such a success. You combine that with the young core, you combine that with the optimism, you combine that with a $63 million payroll. So in theory, there's some flexibility going ahead. You look at the major moves they made. They all seem to work led by Charlie Morton. So there were a lot of reasons, uh, and there are a lot of reasons, that you, you know they should be optimistic going forward. And People should probably buy into this as the start of a window where they hope to be successful again. I mean, they made the playoffs four times in six years from 2008 to 2013. They probably should have made it, you know, both 9 and 12 had some weird things go on. So even if you you know split that, they probably should have made it one of those two as well. So they had a pretty good run. They've obviously changed management at the top. They've changed the manager. They've changed the coaches they've changed the players. I mean, Kevin Kiermaier was the only guy left this year who played in a playoff game in 13, and that was for one inning in the wildcard game. So, you know, they really remade this whole thing, like I said, on the fly, and I think there was a lot of reason for optimism. You, you do have that, you know, okay, you lost, but, you know, just to, to get it back to you in the fifth game, and heck, if you chopped that first inning off, it was a two-to-one game, you know. So it really wasn't a bad game uh, once they got Glass now figured out as well.
0: Well, let's talk about that roster, because you had a good breakdown in the Tampa Bay Times of their 40-man roster. There's only three free agents on this team, so there's only three guys that that you have no control over whether they come back. I mean, you can make offers, but obviously it's up to the player to decide. That's Travis Darnot, Eric Sogard, and uh, Avasiel Garcia. But they only have nine guys who are arbitration eligible, meaning they're in their fourth year of pro, essentially pro ball, because your first three years are team control, essentially. So... Only 12 players of their 40 man roster have four more years' experience. This is a really young team and a young core that they can keep together for years to come.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, they'll churn some of those guys, and some of those nine arbitration eligible guys won't be back. And, and a couple of the guys on the 40 man, you know, Johnny Davis, the pinch runner, you know, that obviously didn't work out the way they first thought as far as impact. So he'll be let go, I'm sure. And a few of the other guys that are kind of in that, you know, 35 to 40 status on the 40-man roster, but no, they've already had a young core. And, you know, part of what you saw during the season, some of the trades they made, and at the time, you know, I think we all had a little, you know, head scratching over a few of the moves, but, you know, they're very uh, forward-thinking and they saw this roster crunch coming. They knew they had this young core. They knew they had more guys and they were going to have roster spots for, you know, why did they trade Nick Solak? Well, Nick Solak was a guy who was going to have to get put on the 40-man roster. So if they, Think they have four or five other right handed hitting infielders better than him, which they do think that. That's why they trade him for a guy like Pete Fairbanks, who fills a different slot for them as far as being a reliever. So part of uh, the moves they made, I mean, getting, you know, trading Jake Faria when they did, I mean, they didn't see a future for him, so they trade, got something for him. So part of that roster management started taking place now uh, during the season. Part of it will take place now going forward. But you're absolutely right. They've got a, a core here of, you know, let's say 30 players from that 40. That they feel pretty good about, and then they'll they massage and maneuver and you know mix up, change the mix a little bit on the rest. You know, I, of those three free agents, look, I would say Garcia had a solid year. I think you know he was the guy that they kind of got after they made a run at some others. They tried to get Nelson Cruz, they tried to get DJ Lemayu. There were a few other guys they couldn't get, didn't get, didn't take their offer, didn't offer high enough. However you want to phrase it, they got to have a Garcia had a solid year. I don't think he'll be back. He's probably going to go look for a multi year deal somewhere. He probably should. Ah, uh, Travis Darno is the most interesting one, though, because you know Mike Zunino had such a miserable year, uh, and it's probably an either-or. And I don't know if you're going to get anything for Zanino. So, do they cut Zanino and go all in to try to sign Darno? Is his defense good enough? Is his health good enough? At his age, can you count on him to be the guy every day? I mean, he pretty much was that guy down the stretch, but early on, you know, when they got him in May, they kind of split the time quite a bit. So, there'll be some questions they have to answer there. So, guard was kind of a, an extra pickup. I mean, at that point, they didn't think Brandon Lau would be back. Uh, they And then it turned out Wendell was also hurt, which maybe they knew and didn't admit. Maybe they didn't know. So Eric Sogard was kind of more of an insurance policy at that point. So to me, of the three free agents, the one that's going to be the most interesting discussion is going to be on Travis Darno.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you there. I mean, it, it was, you know that may have been the, the biggest trade pickup of the season to be honest and it wasn't at the trade deadline and it was for what a hundred thousand dollars cash or something like that wouldn't you know i think the rays had what five catchers get hurt in a two-week span or something um, <laughs>
1: absolutely it was, it was one of those incidental uh incidental moves that turns out to be a great move right no planning involved no no strategy they were desperate for catching they were on the phone looking at every team that had an extra guy and Look, like the fact that he was with the Dodgers, they didn't have a role for him. Andrew Friedman running the Dodgers, obviously a strong relationship still with the Rays, I think. And, I, you know, I talked to Andrew. I wrote a piece from the Rays. were out there toward the end of the season in September. And, and he said, you know, you you do it for your own reasons, but you also factor in some other things. And it's easy to think that part of that was, you know, helping his friends with the Rays out. Part of that was doing right by Travis Darnot, doing right by Travis Darnot's agent. The other players see those type of moves. I mean, it's a business where every move can be scrutinized. And if you're the Dodgers, you took care of a veteran guy, you sent him to a place where he was going to get a chance to play. You checked the box there. Maybe you helped out your old buddies. You checked the box there. From the race standpoint, they needed help. And you know, they also got Eric Kratz. That one didn't work out. They were one for two before the Darno one, they sure hit on
0: So you think if they if they were able to re sign Darno, you'd think Zanino may be a a chopping block candidate?
1: Yeah, it'd be hard to see. I mean, you know, uh, Zanino's arbitration estimate salary, and those, those are just estimates that we had in the paper Sunday, courtesy of MLBtraderumors.com, who kind of employs a guy to do that and figure that out for him. I don't think you could pay Zanino $5 million as the backup when Darno is going to get more than that to be the main guy. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a tricky market on catchers. You know, I mean, Wilson Ramos got what, $18, 19000000 for two years? You know, Chirinos, I think, got 25 for three. I mean, it's somewhere in that six, seven, eight million a year range. Uh, so I don't think the Rays would lock in for two veteran catchers. I mean, they still have Mikey Perez, the left-handed hitting guy who, at the start of the year, it was Perez and Zanino, and that obviously evolved as they both got hurt. So I don't, I don't think you could have Zanino and Darno, if especially if you're paying market price for Darno. Well,
0: let's talk about the right-handed bats in the lineup. obviously uh, Garcia is obviously he's a free agent, may not be re-signed. Um, who might they t- or, you know, what what are they looking for? There is is Darno would obviously be help that if they could resign him as a right-handed bat, but we know they have a lot of left-handed bats in the lineup. What can they do for a right-handed bat?
1: Yeah, the lefty bats are are pretty solid. I mean, right-handed bats, I mean, like I say, Garcia's a free agent, Darneau being a free agent. So there's two of the, you know, the four or five that you want to have in there on a regular basis. I and mean, William Damas certainly has developed into a, a more of an offensive player than you would have thought of it going into last season. I mean, he is, I think, the player who came the furthest this entire season for the Rays, and that's a great thing because a shortstop who has some power, which he showed, 20-homer power, plays a really good shortstop. And, you know, he's got a personality too, and I know some people will say, oh, who cares if It's whether how he plays or not, but he's a team leader type of guy. He's an energy type of guy. He's a guy that you could really have as, as the core uh, to your team. So that's going to help a lot. Now, what are they going to do at third base, Yandy Diaz? You know, obviously good start, then a lot of injuries, three times on the injured list. Then he comes back at the end, hits the homers in Oakland. I think they kind of fell in love with that, played him in the playoffs, didn't work out too well. Matt Duffy's an arbitration guy, $2.9 million, I don't know. He's obviously had a lot of injury history here. Um, so that's a question they're going to have to answer. Jesus Aguiar, the guy that they picked up from the Brewers for Jake Faria in that trade, didn't really get much of an opportunity didn't hit the homers, but he's a 30 homer guy last year. That seems like a classic raise type of, Hey, let's give him another chance and see if we can get him figured out and get him unlocked. Like he was a year ago. So there's some opportunities there. You know, outfield wise. I mean, Tommy Pham is a key guy in their lineup Had the 2020 season. His salary goes up probably, you know, estimated in that eight to $9 million range. So there's a couple of questions there too. I mean, I don't know if they're all going to be back. I don't know if they're going to make, a lot of changes, you know, based on what the owner, Stu Sternberg, said in the clubhouse after the loss in Houston, based on what Eric Neander and Heim Bloom, the two top baseball executives, said at the press conference Friday when they got back to the Trop, they don't plan a lot of changes. But Eric also said, you know, we have a lot of time to think about things, and it's kind of in our to, DNA to always look to change things around a little bit, find a way to make the team better. So I think it'll be a usual raise-off season. You'll hear a lot to talk. You'll hear a lot to chatter. Uh, and they'll eventually make some moves as well.
0: Well, because we all saw them trading Jake Bowers last offseason.
1: Yeah, that was, and and that still is an odd one. I mean, it's so funny, because even as well as Yanni Diaz did, you know, and he certainly did for the first half of the year, I still never quite got that. And then Jake Bowers turned out didn't really have a very good year for the Cleveland Indians, spent a good chunk of time at AAA, uh, didn't necessarily adjust well to kind of getting bounced around between AAA and the majors and positionally, so... I don't know. Maybe you know, people always say you know your own players best, and maybe the Rays knew something there. Maybe he was playing you know above their projections for a stretch last year. But to see them trade him and the five million dollars, which ended up that you know Encarnacion is get that was used to pay for Encarnacion. So in theory, you could kind of connect the dots and say the Rays are paying five million dollars for Encarnacion to be in the playoffs with the Yankees. If you really want to tick people off, but there is, there is a connection there.
0: Let's talk about the pitching staff, and we know last, you know, in 2018, this team invented or created the opener strategy, and it's worked really well for, particularly in 18 and and 19, it worked again. Next year, they may not use an opener. I mean, you look at their starters. You've got Tyler Glass now, Blake Snell, and Charlie Morton. Yanni Chirinos did really well this year as a starter. Ryan Yarbrough did well as a starter this year, and you've got Anthony Bonda and Brent Honeywell potentially coming back next year to be starters. You may have seven quality starters on this team compared to, you know, seasons when you open with one or two healthy ones.
1: Right. Or Leon could be in that mix too, but Absolutely. I will caution you on this, Steve, is that the last two years when they ended up resorting to the opener strategy, they went into spring training thinking they had healthy starters. Sure. Sure. And things happen. And that's, you know, you go from, you go from seven to three or four pretty quickly when you have a couple guys get hurt and one guy doesn't pitch well. And you know, you, you lose a couple guys here and there, but, on the surface, I would agree with you. I would think going into next year, they would be more in a position to have more of a stable rotation. Certainly, the big three, as you mentioned, you know the potential for you know let's say Torinos or Yarborough, I mean, they're going to have to they're going to crunch some numbers on that, and I'm sure they're going to do a lot of you know analysis on are those guys better when they started, or are those guys better when they pitch behind an opener? Was there a reason why one or the other in certain situations where there certain teams where it worked better against? I don't think they will abandon the opener strategy. Mm -hmm. I don't think they'll abandon the bullpen day strategy. I think both of those have shown merit. I mean, what the Rays did to the Astros in Game 4 on that bullpen day, first of all, I thought Kevin Cash and Kyle Snyder had one of their best games ever, just the way they ran those guys in there. But there was a strategy there, and it it, it, probably wasn't as apparent uh, to me, as I wish it had been at the time, but certainly was afterward. They weren't going to let any hitter see the same pitcher twice, and no pitcher faced more than seven batters. And there was a benefit to that. And you heard, you know, a lot of talk even during the uh, ALCS as far as how the Yankees were using their pitching staff in Game Two. That it was a similar kind of idea that the Rays, you know, established a blueprint in a way for that. And you know, I think there's going to be some merit to that. And you're going to see times where, you know, that's a way to get an extra day of rest, even if they do have five starters in the rotation where they'll still push a guy or take an extra day or certainly if they have a doubleheader or a long stretch without an off day, where they'll drop a bullpen day or an opener day in there. because I think that's still an effective strategy for them.
0: Let's talk about the bullpen where I'm sure if you would have said at the beginning of the year, you thought the Rays would be 30 games above 500 with the bullpen of Amelia Pagan, Colin Pochet, and Oliver Drake as your lockdown players. (laughs) <laughs> Nick Anderson too. and, and Nick Anderson, although he was a trade so he was yeah year. Nick Anderson wasn't on yeah. your roster so you wouldn't have guessed that one but of the guys that right. were Emilio on that you had a new system the
1: in the minor- <laughs> yeah Emilio Pagan started the year in the minor leagues good decision by the Rays Oliver Drake started the year in the minor leagues good decision by the Rays you know these guys that they initially didn't have as their top you know seven eight relievers whatever it was they carried at the start of the year ended up being guys who played huge roles for them and Jose yeah, Alvarado was by far the biggest disappointment this season. This was a guy they they passed on chasing some established closer types during the soft season. They had so much faith in Alvarado. They didn't want to put a roadblock in his way. They didn't want to create a debate. They didn't want to create you know, a two-headed closer type thing. They thought this guy was going to be the guy. And you look at his first five, six weeks of the season, he looked like he was on his way to an elite level performance. And then Health issues, family issues, the long absence came back, didn't look like he came back in shape, got hurt again. And then the mysterious, oh, my elbow hurts after the terrible outing in Baltimore toward the end of the year, yeah, really a lost season. So that was their number one guy, and they got virtually nothing out of him after the first five or six weeks of the season. So, yeah, for them to remake the bullpen also on the fly, and, you know, the Nick Anderson trade can't be, uh, overstated how big of a deal that turned out to be at the time. None of us maybe were quite aware how much impact he would have. You know, He rang up a lot of strikeouts, and he was a rookie with the Marlins and kind of left it at that. But, boy, he was a guy that solidified things. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it allowed Pagan to pitch that at the end of the game. He certainly had some games where he gave up too many home runs, and whether he's the guy going forward or not is probably another conversation. But the way they pieced that bullpen together, the faith they showed him Pochet didn't really earn the promotion with his work at Triple-A. Uh, They gave him a chance, had certainly some ups and downs, a couple times where you thought, boy, this guy just looks beat physically and mentally. And they stuck with him and kind of coached him through that. And again, a great job by Kyle Snow.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: instilling confidence in his pitchers is kind of his M.O., and he clearly got Colin Poche straightened out, and he turned out to be a pretty good weapon, too. But, yeah, it was really a a team effort from the bullpen, not the way he drew it up, as you said, and they found a way to make it work, and Castillo coming back strong at the end helped, too. I mean, some of his pitches in those playoff games against the Astros were just nasty stuff, and I think you saw the effectiveness he can provide.
0: Well, you mentioned the closer, and that's a whole separate discussion, and so... Pagan was the closer to end the season. I think Castillo's got the best stuff to be a closer on the current staff. If Alvarado can't turn it around, he's still probably got the best stuff. What I mean? Do are, do you think one of those guys are the closer, or do you think they're going to look elsewhere, or is it all of the above? Or Nick Anderson
1: too? I mean, you could mm-hmm. also make a case of yeah. you know, even though he's really never done it. You know, his stuff was so good. His uh, demeanor he seems so calm really rattled out there. there is he a guy where you just go into spring training and say hey you take it and see what happens so i think all those are possible but I'll, i'm also gonna go back to the same um the same basically pitch i was making going into last season and say even as well as they did this year that there was a lesson to be learned here of not having that one guy and that one guy can make a difference and you know, it means you have to not allow other guys to get to that position. Sure, and maybe that blocks some pass. But I think if you have that one guy who's been there and done it, it's going to create it. You know, then all the other guys can be used to get all the other outs, knowing where the last three outs are going. So I still like the idea of having the established closer. I don't think it'll be a big money guy. Uh, but you know, look at the Washington Nationals here in the National League uh, Championship Series. If Daniel Huston was a guy that Rays had and let go. He's closing for him. Fernando Rodney was a guy the Rays had. God, obviously had a good good run with them for a couple of years, but. You know, there's, there's other guys you can get out there who can get those last three outs based on experience. It doesn't all have to be overpowering stuff. And I think sometimes there's a benefit to that experience.
0: One of the things I think, in the, and we'll kind of go back to the kind of the position players now, but one of the things I think this throughout the season and even in the playoffs you saw it was how much Willie Adamas progressed this year. And I think we forget sometimes, this is his first full season in the big leagues, is that you know he was part of the 2014 trade for David Price. So we've heard about him for years, and he was 18 at the time. But in his first full season, he didn't just, you know, most players make steps in the offseason, and they'll come back the next year, and it seems like they're bigger, stronger, they get it more, they've worked on things. But Willie Damas really made adjustments and progressed throughout the season, which you don't see very often in a young player that well.
1: No, and, and he really didn't have a very good start to the year offensively. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, there was some talk even up until midseason and maybe even closer to the trade deadline of, you know, what were they going to do? Were they going to go get another shortstop? you know, was Willie going to become a part-time player was Willie going to become a platoon guy. You know, Joey Wendell was on one of his injury rehabs. I know he had a couple, but one of them where he played shortstop a couple days in a row and, you know, asking around about that, just, you know, kind of told on the side there that wasn't coincidence. And, you know, it might be where he starts playing shortstop against righties since he's a lefty hitter. And then Willie would play it against lefties being a right-handed hitter. And and yeah, you know, there was some concern, there was some talk and, I don't know, and I'm not going to, you know, propose here whether Willie heard that chatter and knew that, and that's what motivated him, or was it was just a matter of relaxing, things clicking. I know Rodney Linaris, who was new to the coaching staff this year, uh, third base coach, but also the infield coach, had a huge influence on Willie. He worked with uh, Rodney. They worked with a number of the Astros players coming up through the minor leagues. That's where he'd been, and you know, Correa, um, Altuve. You see some of those guys, and you see that how good they are. And I think some of the work they put in some of the same drills that Rodney uh, saw coaches do. And that he, you know, he started using when he was with the Astros in their minor league system, he brought over to the Rays. We all saw Willie. Anytime you added a game, you'd see really out there on the field before batting practice with working with Rodney. So I think Willie dedicated himself. He put in the effort to begin better defensively. He made himself a better offensive player. He wanted to have those power numbers. He got close to 20. He said he wanted to get there. He did 20 homers. So, I think Willie deserves you know, the bulk of the credit here. He got a lot of help. He got a lot of support, a lot of positive thinking. I mean, his locker was right there next to Avisel Garcia. I think that was a good influence for him as well, a veteran guy. You know, They could obviously share the language as well. And there was a lot that went into Willie Adamas getting to where he got. But, boy, you're right. He absolutely came the furthest of any player this year.
0: Well, you talk about some of the coaches, and you mentioned Kyle Snyder and the influence he's had in the pitchers and Rodney Linares. But Kevin Cash, and last year he was finished third in the manager of the year voting. This year, you hear about oh, he's a good manager, but he's not going to win the manager of the year award. I know that you know Aaron Boone's going to probably win this, and I think you know to be honest, Rocco Baldelli probably deserves it as much as anybody, and and Bob Melvin will get votes out in Oakland, but Kevin Cash, I don't understand why everyone just dismisses. Oh well, he's not going to win it. I mean, look at what they. uh, I mean, the injuries. Everyone talks about the Yankees injuries, but the Rays injuries had a lot more, a lot more impact on this team, and going from 90 to 96 wins, making the playoffs, what Kevin Cash has done has been incredible with this team.
1: I think he's done a great job. I think, you know, first of all, the voting just for, for the listeners who aren't as familiar, the voting is done by members of the baseball writers association, just like the Cy Young and MVP and rookie of the year awards. There's uh, two votes in each American league city. That's how you get to the 30 votes. Uh, And, and, you know, they're done, like I said, by different writers. They're done at the end of the regular season, You know, I I don't, I, my guess is Kevin Cash doesn't win. I haven't polled other people. I haven't polled the writer. I haven't even asked the guys who had the votes for our chapter. I don't, you know, you don't really want to do that. I just don't think he's going to get the recognition for the job he's done. I think the fact that the Yankees overcame a bigger volume of injuries, they had more players injured. I know there's some stats out there. I wrote a piece quoting them at one point uh, from one of the analytical services saying that the actual impact on the raise of their injuries was greater than the impact on the Yankees or their injuries based on a level of replacements. Cause obviously the Yankees could go out and, and get some better replacements, but they used some young guys too. I mean, there were some mm-hmm. the days where that Yankee box score looked like it was a uh, Tampa at Port Charlotte spring training game. Uh, the guys that had to make, you know, oh, sorry, you got to make the bus ride. So they, they deserve some credit too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think part of it is, you know, Kevin, there's a perception out there that's not correct that Kevin cash does not make all the decisions. I think you hear that on a couple of the analytical teams. There was some of that going around just last day there too, in the kind of autopsy of the Dodger season where they were discussing you know, does Dave Roberts really make those decisions? So I think the teams with the strong, super smart uh, analytically based front offices, the managers kind of take a hit in that it's like, they don't make the decisions. The team, the decisions are scripted, things like that. That's not the case. They're given a ton of information, but, I mean, all those decisions that are made during a game, Kevin Cash is making those, you know, in consultation. Like I said, pitching wise with Kyle Snyder, but they're making those on the fly. So, does he not get enough credit? That's probably true. I don't think that's going to be enough for him to win that award this year. I mean, they barely made, you know, the second wild card. If you want to look at it from that standpoint, you know, the voting is done. Like I said, that last weekend of the regular season or right after. So here they were, just barely edging out the Indians to get into the second wild card. Somebody who manages a team to hundred plus wins as Aaron Boone did despite all the injuries as Rocco Baldelli did in his first year as manager you know Bob Melvin they at least won the first wild card he also overcame a ton of injuries the suspension of one of their best pitchers in Frankie Montas so there's a lot of guys who have a good case for manager of the year this year and I mean, even if Kevin Cash doesn't make the top 3 that shouldn't take away from the the season he had and the Rays uh confidence in him and which they've obviously shown He got a huge contract extension before this season you know at the end of last season so i don't think there's any doubt the Rays appreciate how valuable
0: he is in the job he does. I know you you talked to Kevin and you asked about is, any changes on the coaching staff, and he doesn't anticipate any unless someone gets hired away. So, are there any possibilities? I mean, last year uh, Charlie Montoyo goes to the Blue Jays, Rocco Baudelli goes to the Twins. Is there any coaches on the staff this year that could get hired away?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the one guy that you know there's been a little bit of chatter about, although I haven't seen his name show up yet in terms of getting an interview somewhere. Is Matt Cartero the bench coach? Mm-hmm. He's a guy who's got a really good reputation throughout the game. He was the third base coach and moved to the bench coach job once Charlie Montoyo got hired, as you said after last season by the Blue Jays. But Matt's a guy who worked in the minor league system for a while. He was with the Indians for a while, assistant hitting coach. Came back over to the race Super organized, uh, super smart, well respected, even tempered. I mean, just a lot of the good signs, you know, that uh, you see teams that are hiring kind of the younger, inexperienced managers. Uh, outside of that, I mean, you know, the Rays obviously made the move to make Kyle Snyder the pitching coach because they knew he was going to be highly sought after. I don't think he's going anywhere. Ozzy Timmons, you know, is an assistant hitting coach at this point, first base coach. You know, if he had an opportunity to become a full-time hitting coach somewhere, I don't know if that'd be something appealing to him. He's obviously from the area, likes being here. But you know, I think the rest of the staff's pretty well set. I mean, Stan Barosky's kind of the glue, the bullpen coach. Uh, Chad Matola, you know, another guy with local ties, Central Florida area. I think he really likes being the hitting coach here. He and Cash get along well. Paul Hoover was new to the staff this year. He fit in well. I think it's a very cohesive staff, so I, I think they're in pretty good shape unless somebody gets a job offer.
0: Well, what about the front office? I know Heim Bloom has been interviewed uh, several times in the past few seasons. Obviously, the, the success the Rays front office has had in, in rebuilding this team without tanking like some other teams have done and really reloading it and creating one of the best farm systems in baseball, if not the best at this point too, with a young nucleus that's already here at the the big league level. So any changes there possibly?
1: Well, there's only one team uh, as we sit here and and have this conversation, there's only one team looking for a GM and that's the Boston Red Sox. And uh, I think it would be a hard swallow for the race to see any of their people (laughs) go to a division rival. I mean, you can't stand in someone's way if the opportunity presents, but yeah, you know, the Red Sox are an interesting study. There's been a lot of moves they've already made this off-season for a team that doesn't have a GM, which has led some of the Boston media to speculate they already have their person, and there's there's a reason that they're waiting. So um, I don't think there's going to be anything front office-wise. It looks like this is going to be across baseball a winter of managers taking the fall. We know there's eight openings uh, as we go right now, as we're talking now, and you know, even the possibility there's still one or two that are maybe twisting in the wind a little bit. So I think this is the off season for manager changes. And, and I know, you know, there's front office guys that if this doesn't work out, you wonder if their bosses, and the owners will end up looking at them and over the next year or two and say, you know, okay, I've trusted you. You've had your three or four or five years. We didn't get anywhere. We've hired a couple of managers. Now it's time to change at the to top. But I think this is going to be a fairly quiet off season for the major front office guys.
0: All right, Mark. Before we let you go, the playoffs are still underway in Major League Baseball. We have the ALCS and the AL or the NLCS. Uh, we're taping this on Tuesday before the games at night. But so let's start in the National League. The Nationals have a three-zero series lead as we talk about this. That could be over by the time you're listening to this podcast. Um, how have they taken it to St. Louis?
1: Yeah, I mean the Nationals have been the story of the off, of the uh, postseason to me. I mean they were also a wild card team and. And they looked at one point like they were going to be beaten by the Brewers in the wild card game. And, and now they're in complete, complete control of the NLCS and looks like they're headed to their first World Series. And, you know, obviously a raised angle there. Davey Martinez, the longtime raised player and coach uh, who some thought should have gotten the manager's job when Kevin Cash was hired. Instead, he ends up following Joe Madden of Chicago, works as his bench coach there for a number of years, gets an opportunity to go to the Nationals last year, has an OK season. They took a rough start this year. There was a lot of chatter. Maybe he was going to get fired uh, the way they were struggling earlier this season. I think even into, you know, fairly late May. And then they just started playing uh, better baseball. And, and here they are. Looks like they're heads to the World Series. So give Davey Martinez a lot of credit for what the Nationals have done. And one thing, too, that's of note is, you know, all the talk, and we talked earlier in this episode about bullpenning and openers and things like that. The Nationals are an old school team. they got these really good starting pitchers. They just let them go out there and pitch. Uh, so I, I think that's an interesting study as well of, of just the different style, kind of like the way the Astros do it in the American League uh, playoffs, too, and just you know, have these guys and let them go. And if they can get into the sixth, seventh, eighth inning, then let them have it. And different styles, different weapons, different ways the rosters are built. I see some familiar faces on the Nationals, but they have just uh, rendered the Cardinals offense basically nonexistent, and that's been the key.
0: All right, in the American League, we have uh, Game 3 of the ALCS would have been last night between the Yankees and the Astros. Of course, most of the media was talking about Game 4 before we even got to Game 3 about the potential of a rainout. But uh, they split that series in Houston. Uh, Granke takes the loss in Game 1. Verlander pitches in Game 2, and they do well. You've got Garrett Cole on the mound tonight before we talk about this. But how do you see this series playing out?
1: It's a tough one for Rays fans because you've got the Yankees who most Rays fans just by nature aren't going to root for or be fans of. And, and, you know, going back to, you know, being in the same division with them, the Rays, you know, haven't ever had a chance to play them in the playoffs. The way the fans come and invade the trop and kind of make it their home when the Yankees are in town. So you have that. But on the other hand, if you're a Rays fan, you have the Astros who just knocked you out of the playoffs and you don't really like them either. So it's a tough American League uh, series for Rays fans to watch, but certainly the power pitching of the Astros as the race saw, you know, Verlander Cole, that combination uh, has, has been what stood out. The Yankees piecing their pitching together a little bit more, you know, the depth of the Yankee lineup, impressive, but still some holes and Stanton getting hurt, you know, not being available in game two after playing in game one, missing most of the season. So the Yankees are in a sense, the underdog in that series as well. I think the Astros, if they can get their footing under them and kind of get their pitching back. I mean, the Rays extending the Astros to game five and forcing them to use Garrett Cole in that game five to win the division series was a huge help for the Yankees and whether that's enough to make the difference in the series. Otherwise, I think the Astros are still the team to beat.
0: So who do you have winning the World Series?
1: I think you probably would still go with the Astros at this point. And certainly as we sit here and have this conversation right now, I think once, that once they kind of get their pitching you know, kind of realigned and, and Garrett Cole pitching in game three, uh, as we talked about is, is kind of a key moment for them. But, you know, the Rays extending them is what gave the Yankees a chance to take the jump in the series. They won one of the first two. They obviously lost the second game on the walk-off home. The 11th. The Yankees had gone up two 0 I think that might've been enough of an edge for them, but I think the Astros by the end of a seven game series will show they're the better team. And then going into the world series, you know, the nationals obviously have a lot going for them, but I think sometimes the reality is you get there, and in a way, similar to the 08 Rays, like everything was working out and they got there and then it was like, whoa, we're in the World Series. And then you run into a better team. And I think that was, is what would happen to the Nationals. Also interesting point that'll be made nationally, but you can say we broke it here first. If it ends up Astros-Nationals, they share a spring training facility and now they'd be playing in the World Series. How about that?
0: Wow. Yeah, I also wonder how with the Nationals, how if they if they've swept the series, and as we're taping this, we don't know that, but if they do how that long layoff will affect them going into the World Series as well.
1: Yeah, it's the old uh, the kind of the rust versus the momentum kind of theory, and too. And, you know, sometimes you've seen teams that have swept uh, one year. In fact, the Tigers came down to Florida and went to Lakeland and spent like three days working out in Lakeland because you don't want to work out in Detroit, obviously, in late October. Uh, but they went down to Florida, came down here and worked out and it, it kind of didn't back. It didn't work out for them as far as I remember. So it's an interesting debate, too. Do you just kind of sit through it and wait if you got to wait three or four or five days, which you typically don't have that much time off? Do you just do light workouts? Do you do simulated games? And it's going to be a, a good debate. More fodder, just like the game four, who gets the momentum fodder. If there's a rainout, there'll be a lot of fodder about that if the uh, Nationals do end up with three or four days off.
0: He's Mark Topkin. He covers the Rays for the Tampa Bay Times and has ever since the franchise was created. And, of course, he'll keep you up to date all offseason on all the moves uh, that the Rays make heading into spring training in February. Thank you very much, Mark. All right, man. Anytime, Steve. As we said, we take that earlier on Tuesday with Mark. And since then, the Astros now have a 2-1 to series lead in the ALCS. They beat the Yankees 4-1. to The Nationals have eliminated the Cardinals in a sweep as they win 7-4. to They take all four games of that surprise team kind of in the World Series as they were the wild card. They hosted the first wild card for the National League. And so they're in the World Series for the first time ever, that franchise in the World Series, awaiting the Astros or the Yankees. And they'll have to wait about a week or so before they begin that series. So uh, some other news and notes of the day. The Buccaneers released wide receiver punt returner Bobo Wilson. He's uh, kind of struggled on punt returns, averaged less than three yards a return, and he uh, muffed a punt that he lost on Sunday. So he has been cut. The Bucs also released a linebacker, Devontae Bond, the The Vipers of the XFL have begun their draft. Aaron Murray, former Plant High School quarterback, will be their quarterback. And Jerry Glanville will be the defensive coordinator on the staff here in Tampa for the Vipers. And the lightning defeated the Montreal Canadians three to one as they kind of got back in the winning form. Steven Stamkos saying it was a step in the right direction, although they took too many penalties. and they want they said the uh, Andre Vasilevsky and the penalty kill bailed them out there. So still something they want to work on, but Steven Stamco says that game's a step in the right direction. The lightning will be in Boston on Thursday night for the sixth game of this six-game road trip. And then they get to return home Saturday night against the Avalanche. Get to spend about a week at home. They'll have uh, two more games after that next week. So uh, Lightning uh, getting back in their winning ways now. They're 3-2-1 and one on the season through six games. Tomorrow on the podcast, we're going to have Matt Baker talking all things college football. Of course, Florida just uh, coming off that uh, loss to LSU. What does that mean for them? Georgia losing in the division. So the SEC East getting very interesting despite that loss for Florida. And, of course, we'll talk about Florida State and USF and others with him. So for The Vacationing Rick Stroud, I'm Steve Versnick. Have a great day, everybody.